If you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2. The section of Scripture that Lauren did last week was chapter 2, verses uh, 18 through 23. Today I'll do 24 through 29. But that's all one big idea, and so I want to read all of it for us together uh, before I start to make comment on it. So 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. I'm going to read all the way through verse 29. 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no truth is of the lie. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and the exposition of your word today. I pray that the words that I have to say would be in accordance with your will and your desire for this text. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me wisdom as I preach and I pray that you would enable hearing and understanding as your people listen to your word. God, I pray that you would use this word to challenge us and to change our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a teenager, the great 1990s, anyone? Okay, thanks. When I was a teenager, there was a word that we used, and we used it quite frank, uh, frequently. I went to Christian school, and we used this word quite frequently. And it was a word that was used to, note, to denote someone who had been on your team had been one of your buddies, one of your friends, had been on your side, had been with you, but then turned against you. They started rooting for a different team. They started going out with a girl that you just broke up with. They started telling the teacher about the secrets that you were trying to keep. You know what you called them? You called them a sellout. You guys remember that word? You're a sellout. How could you have done such a thing? And sometimes the sellout was obvious. Like the kids showed up at the school, not dance because it was a Baptist school, but the school formal with the girl that you had just dated. You're like, you're such a sellout. How could you have done that? At other times, it was much more insidious. The teacher would come and say, hey, we heard that XYZ happened, and you knew that the only way that they knew that that happened was because that sellout told on you. Selling out was not a good thing. Selling out was something that could get you in trouble and more often than not get you beat up, right? Nobody wanted to be a sellout. When I was in high school, being a sellout meant one thing. What I just read you from 1 John chapter 2 is about sellouts in the church. Spiritual sellouts. 
people who are in the church, who are part of the church, who claim to be Christians, who say that they love Jesus, and then in one way or another sell out, sell out the gospel, sell out the good news, sell out the word of God. Here's how I know that, and why I wanted to read all of those verses this morning, is because if you look in verse 19 and following, they went out from us because they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Where were they to begin with? They were sitting in the pew next to them. They were sitting in the, in the house church next to them. That the people that he's going to talk about were people that went to church, that ascribed to Christianity, that ascribed to the gospel, that said that they loved Jesus. But look at verse 26. Verse 26, John says, I write these things to you about those who were trying to deceive you. That there was a spirit of spiritual sellout that happened in the church in the first century. Guess what? The spirit's still here. That there is a spirit of sellout within Christianity in the 21st century. It was there in the first century. It's here in the 21st century. It's been there every century in between. And the job of the true church of Jesus is to open God's word and to preach the gospel and preach truth from scripture and also to defend against error, defend against false teaching. And what I want you to know this morning, whether you're here for the first time, you've been here a few times, you grew up in this church, you've been around for a long time and, and know the Christian lingo, that my desire and my goal and my job is to please the Lord by preaching his word and helping us to understand not my ideas, but spiritual truth. I believe that spiritual truth exists and is known by God's word, his holy, infallible, inspired, authoritative word. But I believe that there is a spirit in Christianity today of spiritual sellout. And I want to start this morning by explaining what that looks like. I want you to actually see what that looks like. Because it's insidious, and because so many times it's, it's difficult to see, and I want to be clear about what some of this looks like, and then I want to show us from the text how we can escape that. The things that I will say right now pertain to the church. They pertain to Christianity. As I say some of these things, you might think, well, that must be secular people. That must be non-Christians. That must be outside the church. What I'm talking about is that you could go to a church today and hear what I'm going to tell you. That I could give you website addresses to, to uh, Christian organizations that will preach and proclaim the false teaching that I'm going to share with you right now. That people who claim to be Christians, and not just cults, but evangelical Christians, will say some of these things. As it pertains to truth, the idea of truth, and the knowability of truth, and the authority of truth, and the objectivity of truth. As a Christian, I believe that truth, spiritual truth is objective and knowable, and it's found in God's Word, the Bible. But here's what many are teaching today about truth. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. This is being taught in colleges and, and even in seminaries, in Bible colleges. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. That you can believe one thing and you can believe something different and you can believe something different. As long as you believe it sincerely, all of those paths of truth will kind of lead to the same truth. It's called the relativity of truth as opposed to the exclusivity or the objectivity of truth. It may mean this to you, but it means this to me. People do that in churches, right? Well, that, that may mean that to you, but it means something different to me. And truth is defined in how I define it. And as I read the scripture and I see it how I see it, and you see it how you see it, we see it 
polar opposite, that's okay. It means that to you. It means that to me. And there are churches and there are Christians who are ascribing to that ideology and that understanding as it relates to truth. What about as it relates to the Word of God, the Bible? We believe in what's called the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That's a fancy way of saying that all of the words of, of Scripture, especially in the originals, all the words of Scripture are inspired, are breathed out, are given by God. Okay? That's good. You know verbal plenary inspiration. I'm impressed. It's good. But here's what's happening in evangelical Christianity today, in branches of evangelical Christianity. There's a, a movement to redefine inerrancy. To say that inerrancy doesn't really mean that the Bible speaks truthfully about the things that it says. Most of the Old Testament is mythology. Most of the New Testament is just good practical teaching. Things like that. Within evangelical churches to say that there's no such thing as objective quantifiable truth and that there's no that, that god's word in essential essentially can't be trusted and that's just truth in the bible as it pertains to the character of god you can go to churches in puyallup today that teach about god god is love is that true by the way yet yeah, this is yes john 3 first john 3 says it god is love but when we teach that the totality of God is love, and I've preached about this before, I'm going to save the rest of it, the other barrel, for a couple weeks from now when we get to that verse in 1 John 3. But here's what's happened in churches with the definition God is love. What's happened is we've switched that love is God. You see the difference? When, when all of God is a, a feeling, and, and the totality of who God is is just this idea of love, and I define love as how I feel, then love becomes God. And the way that I interpret scripture, and the way that I interpret culture, and the way that I deal with people who are different from me, is love is God. As long as we all feel love, we're all good. And it's an insidious, a subtle, spiritual sellout, because it's not the totality of what God's word has to say about God. The person and work of Jesus Christ. We just celebrated communion here. We believe in something called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That is foundational to your salvation, my salvation if you're a Christian. That's foundational to what we provide here. There's a Christian, a substitutionary atonement, by the way, means Jesus died in my place for my sins. I was a sinner. He was not. He died. He was perfect. He died in my place for my sins. And his blood atoned for, paid the price for my sins. Substitutionary atonement. We celebrate it in communion. There are those, there's one pseudo-Christian author who said that believing in, the substitu in substitutionary atonement is, a, is tantamount to believing in divine child abuse. That you can't, that, that no father could do that to their son. And so there's a redefining and a repackaging of what substitutionary atonement means. God's not really angry. God's not really wrathful. So his wrath doesn't need to be covered over. And so there's a redefining of, of, of a foundational doctrine of scripture. I can see on some of your faces, you're like, really? This really happens? This really happens. There's more. The Holy Spirit. Some people have called the Holy Spirit the redheaded stepchild of the Trinity. I don't know if that's fair or good or whatever. But unfortunately, the Holy Spirit, more than the Father or the Son, gets like a bad rap. And people aren't sure what to do with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, right? The Pentecostals go crazy. They're waving flags and doing all that. So then the Baptists, they say, we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Bible. All right, put the seatbelt on the spirit. What are we going to do with that thing? The spirit is, in fact, a person, male. There are 
there's a movement. There's a, a whole movement. I'll talk about it more actually because it pertains specifically to one of the verses today. But there's a whole movement called Christian mysticism. You're like, Christian mysticism? Wait, what? Christian mysticism. That's always looking for something new, something personal, something direct, some direct revelation from God without a need for the Bible. Like, I don't need the Bible. I had somebody here, not in our church, but somebody was in this building, standing right about over here, say, I don't need to read the Bible. I go into my prayer closet every day, and God meets with me personally. I said, I mean, how can I do that? That's kind of cool. But that's subtle, spiritual sellout as it pertains to the Holy Spirit. What about human nature? The church is teaching on human nature. Bible's teaching on human nature. We believe that all people are sinners by nature and by choice. That's the beginning of the good news, church. The fact that I'm a sinner by nature and by choice is the beginning of the good news because without the bad news, there's no good news. But there's a whole movement in churches today to bring in essentially pop psychology to say you're not inherently bad, you're just a victim. You're a victim of your circumstances, your surroundings, your upbringing, and you don't really need Jesus' gospel. You just need self-actualization and self-betterment. You're like, they teach that in churches. There are churches that teach that. Transgender ideology is another part of this, okay? And I, I want to be respectful and careful, but at the same time, when these things are coming into the church and they're taking God's word and distorting the scripture in order to try to justify a cultural movement, that's not Bible speaking. And when pastors and Bible teachers and people are selling out in that way, my concern is we're not hearing the gospel. We're not hearing what God's word has to say on something. We're taking God's word, and instead of doing what we should do and taking culture issues and viewing them in in, through the lens of God's word, and there's a lot of talk about lenses today, isn't there, if you know, and instead, we're saying, no, 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 we need to interpret God's word through the lens of culture and see what the Bible means as we look through the glasses of culture. And that's not how we read the Bible. Related to that, and I'll use some terms now because I think throughout the course of, of church history for 2,000 years, there have been attacks on, on fundamental doctrines of the faith, such as what I've talked about already. There have also been fad theological ideas throughout the history of the Christian church in different eras that have come in and threatened orthodoxy. And so here are some of the ones that are threatening the church, Christianity, the church today. Woke ideology, a threat to the church today. I'm going to use some terms. Some of you understand them. Some of you say, I'm not sure about them. Some of you will agree with me. Some of you will disagree with me. I'd love to have more conversation with us because if we're going to disagree on some of these, let's at least know what things talk about, okay? Woke ideology, including Black Lives Matter, including critical race theory, okay? Those kinds of things, they're, they're not grounded and based in biblical truth. They're based in cultural ideology. And what's happening is that there are pastors and churches that are taking cultural ideology and grabbing a Bible verse or two and saying, see, in Amos it says we should do this, and that means that this is okay. And I would say that fundamentally, okay, fundamentally, some of my, two of my best friends, one is African, one's African-American, the, the one who's African, who lives in Africa right now, wrote a, a book called The Real Cure for Racism. We've had lots of conversations about this. Those are the people that get the most angry. When I talk about Black Lives Matter, they're the ones who get the most angry. 
right? Because they're like, it's not based in what God's word has to say. It's based in a cultural ideology that's like superimposed over the top of a couple of Bible verses. And what I just want us to do is to be able to read God's word and understand that God's word actually has a much better solution to racism than Black Lives Matter. God's word has a better solution to biblical justice than the social justice movement has. But these are the things, the woke ideology, social justice, something called deconstructionism, where the the whole idea is we tear down all of the long-held beliefs, we tear down all of the fundamental doctrines of the faith, we we deconstruct all of that so that we can build up something new. Church, I need you to know, these are the authors that some of you read. These are the bloggers that some of you follow. These are the podcasts that you listen to. This is the YouTube channels. All of this stuff is readily available. Another one, the last one, that is threatening the church today. It's, it's called antinomianism. It means against law. And the idea is, I've got a, really my, my best friend, went to church for a lot of years at a church called Grace Church, which is a great name for a church. won't tell you where it's at. You won't know the church, the specific one. But he went to this church for a long time. I said, the pastor preached from the Bible, taught from the Bible. It's great, verse-by-verse exposition. But there was never any application because the pastor believed everything has already been done by Jesus, so we have nothing to do. There's no application. There's no imperatives in Scripture. It was always just rest on the grace of Jesus. Do we love the grace of Jesus? Yes. Are there imperatives in the Bible? Do this, don't do that. Yes, right? And so what antinomianism says is there's no need for belief or no need for practice. We just need belief. All of those things are things that are threatening to spiritually to be spiritual sellouts in our in our culture and in our churches. So as we come to 1 John, I sincerely believe this is what John is battling against. When he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. They were there. They were with you. They were teaching. They were doing the things. They're trying to deceive you. The same thing was going on in the first century is going on in the 21st century. And here's the warning. And here's what you do about it. So as we break down these verses, I'll give you some things that will help us to escape that subtle sellout. The first one is this. In verses 24 and 25, we've got to let God's word abide in you. Let God's word abide in you. Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. One of the key principles, basic principles of Bible study is that when something is repeated, it's emphasized and we pay attention to it. So there are two concepts that are repeated in these verses that I want to pound on for a couple minutes. And the first one is that phrase that you see twice, heard from the beginning. You see it? That which you have heard from the beginning. For them, for the people that John was listening to, what they had heard from the beginning was the body of truth that they had learned from the apostles and from reading the scriptures that they had at that time, that the body of truth, that the Christian teaching that they had from the time that they accepted Christ until the time that John was writing to them. He says, what, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. For you and for me, here's what you've heard from the beginning. Ready? It's all written right here. We got one book. You got 66 books. 
Some of them are tiny. Some of them are long. Some of them make perfect sense. Some of them totally leave you scratching your head. But when he says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you, here's what I want you to know, because this is going to be the foundation of the whole thing. It's God's word, that the word of God is where truth, spiritual truth is to be found. Now, here's why that's a problem. We live in a culture that has a predisposition towards something new. Give me a new idea. Give me a new ideology. Give me a new thought. Give me a new word. Give me a new this. Give me a new that. And always looking for something new has propagated lots of heresy throughout the course of Christian history. When he says, let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you, here's what I need you to know. That both antiquity and universality are really important. I'll explain both of those. Antiquity. There wasn't a guy about, you know, 75 or 100 years ago that sat down at a desk and came up with this whole thing. Right? That this book was written over the course of 1,600 years, roughly 2,000 years, 40-ish different authors, three different languages, three continents, and the latest books were written over 2,000 years ago. The earliest books were written 3,500 years ago. This book is the, the best-selling book of all time, just barely beat out the Harry Potter series, but it managed, right? It talks about, and the central theme is the most popular history, famous, famous person in human history. All of that is important because when you open your copy of God's Word, you need to understand that this has been tried, and that this has been true, that people throughout the course of human history, and I know that the, what the skeptics say, and I've read the skeptics' arguments, I know the things about how they say they left all these books out, and they added all these words, and they just pushed their agenda. But for all of those questions, there are definitely answers. But at the end of the day, I need you to know that this is not just one guy's good idea. That all of those different authors who were carried along by the Holy Spirit over the course of a long period of time, there weren't contradictions. You say, but it seems like it. But they're explainable. You look at the, the main thrust and the main theme of this book, and there's no contradictions. There's no different stories. That it all aligns, and it all tells us about the person and work in G of Jesus. And antiquity is important because when you open a Bible, you're opening something that has been tested and tried and true for a long time. That which you heard from the beginning. Universality means that this wasn't just a tiny little subset of people that believed this. This wasn't just one group of people predominantly in one country or one area. This wasn't just the followers of one cult or one leader. Universality means that people the world over throughout the course of most of human history have believed all are part of what this tells us about. And that's important because it helps us to understand the credibility of God's word. When he says, that which you have heard from the beginning. Today, spiritual subjectivity rules the day. Spiritual subjectivity, a new revelation, a new word from the Lord. Give me a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The quest for novelty. And again, everybody is... There's so many voices claiming spiritual truth. But I need you to know that truth is not determined by majority opinion. That's actually something that people teach today. That truth is actually determined by the majority opinion. And if you follow that out, it leads to anarchy, by the way. Because whatever the, the masses decide, whatever they decide, gets to be the rule of the day. It doesn't work in, in culture and history. And it doesn't work with God's word. 
Let God's word abide in you. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up close to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. If you know anything about Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, the Pennsylvania Dutch people, the Amish people lived there. And we would go and we would look at all of the Amish things and be like, wow, how can they live without buttons on their clothes and electricity and the internet? That's really crazy. The coolest thing about Amish country is they have these things, it's called a smorgasbord. You ever heard of a smorgasbord? Okay, right? How many of you like Old Country Buffet? All right, y'all got to go back to Pennsylvania and go to Lancaster because they have this thing called a smorgasbord where the Amish people put on these feasts and you go and it's just food for miles. They have tables with miles of food and it's all organic and it's all homegrown. None of it came out of a Cisco truck and it's amazing and it's glorious. And the best part about a smorgasbord is you can go over and you can be like, I want some fried okra and I want some green beans and I want, oh, those are vegetables, never mind. I want some shoe fly pie and I want some cherry pie and I want some chocolate that they made in their backyard and I want all the meat that you could possibly eat of every kind and you pile it all on your plate and you can leave aside any of the things that you don't want and you can have whatever you want and, and eat it i would tell you this that a smorgasbord is amazing for dinner but a smorgasbord approach to spirituality is not a good idea but that's what people are doing in christianity today let's take a little bit of woke ideology let's take a little bit of social justice let's take a little bit of uh, thinly veiled communism some would say a little bit of thinly veiled marxism let's take a little bit of, of thinly veiled teachings of some of the eastern meditation and things like that let's put all of that on the sporgus board let's toss the bible there next to it and let's just kind of grab what we want from each of those and we'll just kind of make our own religion i need you to know that the bible doesn't belong on the smorgasbord of spiritual opinion Okay, that when we're talking about the truth, that which you have heard from the beginning, I want us to be driven into God's word. The original is still the best. Hebrews chapter two, verse one says this. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's always the tendency toward the drift. If you've ever been in a, in a boat where there's a tide, you've been in a boat where the wind is going and you're not anchored and you're sitting there, you're fishing, you're just hanging out, doing whatever, not paying attention and then suddenly you realize we're a long way from where we were. Drift happens very subtly. And Hebrews warns us that we need to pay closer attention to what we have heard because it's so easy to drift. And that's the truth of the scripture. That leads us then to the next part of this verse and the other main idea that you see on the screen there, the word abide. And abide is something that's repeated several times. It's actually repeated ten times in chapter two. To abide means this. It means to remain. It means to continue. It means to stay closely connected. Some people would say it means to anchor ourselves in. When you hear abide in you, you, maybe you think back to John 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and, and I in you. And John is just continuing that teaching here by talking about how the word of God needs to abide in us, how we need to be anchored in God's word, how we need to stay in God's word. So if you're into notes, I'm going to give you five ways right now, very quickly, that you can remain anchored in God's word. You ready? The first way to remain anchored in God's word is to, to be anchored extensively, extensively. 
some of us have this idea if I just get my verse of the day from YouTube, if I get my verse from, from my Bible app, if I get my verse of the day from our daily bread, I'm good to go, right? That's kind of like the antibiotic that I'm on right now, right? Just pop one a day, 10 days, you're good to go. God's Word doesn't work that way. God's Word is meant to be read. This is like a library of books that tells one great story. If, you're not, if you didn't know that, that's, that's the idea of, of this book. It's a library of books that tells one great story. We've got to read it extensively to get and understand that. Reading extensively means reading in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Reading things throughout the Word of God. Getting a game plan. Number two, not only extensively, but read thoroughly. Okay? Again, reading a few chapters a day, reading my four chapters or five chapters a day is a good thing. But if I get to the end of five chapters and I don't even remember what I just read, is it really worth it? Reading thoroughly means that I study something. Maybe you grab the sermon supplement from, from these messages and you use that to dig a little bit deeper. Number three, we read systematically. And that means that we have a game plan of some sort so that we understand the full counsel of God's word. I don't want us to be uh, Proverbs and James Christians. Great books, right? Proverbs and James and that's where people go all the time because they're super practical and applicable. But I don't want us to be Proverbs and James Christians because there's a lot more in here than that. Reading systematically, having a game plan. The last two I'll give you together, they're reading individually and collectively. You definitely need your time where you read on your own, spend time in God's Word on your own. But I want to encourage you to maybe do something you haven't done before. Read with some other people. Every time, as a pastor, every time that I'm involved in a small group or I meet with some other pastors or a group of young men or whatever, and we get together and we're talking about God's Word, I glean insights. I could have studied the text all week. Now glean insights. Study God's Word together. I'll give you a way right at the end of the service to, to show you how you can do that. That's how we're anchored in God's Word. That's how we let God's Word abide in us. Point number two in the next two verses is let God's Spirit teach you. Now we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. You ready? Buckle up, especially if you're charismatic. Put on your seatbelt. No. I do. We laugh. We joke around a little bit, but here's the deal. There are abuses of the Holy Spirit on both sides. There are abuses of the Holy Spirit that we'll talk about that, that are uh, saying that the Holy Spirit of God does things that the Spirit of God does not do. And then there are abuses of the Holy Spirit where we don't allow the Spirit of God to do things that He does and that He wants to do. And people in this camp, in the Baptist kind of conservative camp, have really gone in that direction. And what we want to do is say, what does God's Word have to say about it? Like, how can we understand this to the best of our ability? Look at these two verses, verses 26 and 27. I, I think you're going to like what I read because it might get you out of here early. You ready? Now you're really dialed in. Somebody's like, oh, really? Okay. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Okay, we talked about that. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. Can I get an amen? There you go. I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> but, at his, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. So let's talk about this whole idea of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, okay? And needing or not needing teachers and all that. Remember, the, again, the context here is spiritual deception. 
There were people who were deceiving them spiritually, teaching them in ways that weren't in accordance with the Word of God. And so John is then going to come in, he's going to talk about the relationship of the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God, and I would argue even the church of God, in understanding, understanding spiritual truth. When he says this word, anointing, he says, verse 27, the anointing that you receive from him, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in you. That's one of those ones that people have really gotten mixed up on, right? So Pentecostal and, and, and hyper-charismatics have said, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is something that happens after you become a Christian, you become a Christian, you're living your life, you do certain things, say certain prayers, and then the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit comes and anoints you, and usually you are, that's manifested in a way of speaking in an ecstatic language, speaking in a, in a, a tongue that's not your normal language, or an ecstatic prayer language, or something, there's this manifestation of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so typically, when you hear the term anointing, it's usually used more by that group, and usually, again, like Baptists and conservative people stay away from the idea of anointing. But it says in the scripture that there was an anointing. So we need to chase that around and see, like, what does that actually mean? We don't have to go far. Look at verse 20, 1 John 2, 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all, you ready? You've been anointed by the Holy One. You've been anointed by the Spirit of God. And you all, does this say that you all spoke in crazy ecstatic tongues? Yeah, right? Did you do that? No. No, you didn't do that. Did you run around healing people? No. Did you run around picking up snakes and running around with those? No. And you all what? Have knowledge. You all know. They were anointed by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God gave them spiritual understanding about things that they already had been taught, about what they had already been taught from the beginning, what they had already heard from the beginning. That's important, but John wrote more about it in John's Gospel, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Gospel of John, chapter 14, you can turn there if you want, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. This is Jesus talking, by the way. These things have I spoken to you while I was still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What is the Holy Spirit going to do? Is he going to bring tongues, ecstatic languages, healing powers, the ability to play the tambourine or wave a worship hanky? No. What's he going to do? He's going to bring to remembrance the things that they had already been taught. John 16 continues. John 16, verses 12 through 14. I still have many things to say to you. I feel, that, I feel Jesus' pain right here. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Anybody? <laughs> You've got to pay attention. I'll let you out of here earlier. You cannot bear them now. I have so much to say. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is the Spirit of God doing? This is one of the key texts to help us to understand the ministry of the Spirit of the Holy Spirit right now. He's helping us to understand the Scriptures. I don't have time this morning, but I would take you to, to the other key passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul talks about, in verses 6 through 13, the Apostle Paul talks about how spiritual things are determined by, are 
are determined or understood by spiritual people. But he says that the Spirit of God is what helps us to understand spiritual things. All of these passages help us to see and to understand that what the Spirit of God does in anointing is helps us to understand the Word of God. It's not giving us some kind of new revelation. It's not giving us a new word or a new divine directive. One of my great concerns, there are good, well-meaning people who would say things like this, okay? And I don't hate them. I think it's misdirected. I love them. I care about them. But there are good people who will say things like this. The Lord told me. The Lord revealed to me. The Lord gave me in a vision. The Lord gave me a dream. The Lord told me I should tell you. And I, I just want everyone to know that when you say that, you're claiming what is called special revelation or direct revelation, okay? That's really heavy and weighty, especially when someone comes and says, the Lord told me in a vision to eat pepperoni pizza and not cheese. Like, I don't know that that's what he's wasting revelation on. But special revelation in the the Old Testament and the New Testament was taken very seriously. A prophet had to bat a thousand. They had to get it right every time. It was normally written down Okay, so God's giving you dreams and visions and words and those kind of things. You may want to write that down. God's not continuing to do things in that way. That does not mean that the Spirit of God can't direct us. That doesn't mean that the Spirit of God can't help us to understand things, reveal things to us in that way. But here's the concern, is that there's a great overemphasis in what theologians have called the internal ministry of the Word versus the external ministry of the Word. So we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. That's something that's a subjective experience and that's necessary. But we also need the objective reality of the Word of God. And I believe that the way that God has designed it is that those work in balance, that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to help us understand and and discern spiritual truth. What about the dreams? What about the visions? What about all of the other things? I don't know where they come from, and I know that that's all subjective, and it's all things that, that, that it's hard to fight against, but at the end of the day, if I'm not discerning those things through the lens of Scripture and what Scripture actually says, there is a great possibility that I'm being deceived, that I'm being spiritually deceived, because if there's no test for it, then anybody can say anything that they want, and if there's no test for it, and anybody can say anything that they want, then revelation really means very little. The revelation of Scripture really means very little. So what do we believe? We believe that God uses His Word. But I also believe that God uses, that that the Holy Spirit of God, when I stand up here and pray, or when I go to study the Word of God, that the Spirit of God helps me understand the Word of God. So here's what it looks like very simply and very practically. To discern spiritual truth, you've got to open your Bible. And then you've got to open in prayer. Right? You've got to pray things like the psalmist prayed, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your law. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. God, this is your word and I really want to get it right because it's really heavy. It's really intense. It's really important. It's not like the fiction novel that I read or the biology class that I took in college. This is of utmost importance. Spirit of God, please help me. Please help me to understand it and discern it. The Spirit of God gives you wisdom to understand, and it says it right there in the text. And that's what I want you to see. 
because we live with such an overemphasis on the internal and the subjective and a de-emphasis on the objective and the external and the truth of God's word. And I would ask that we would put those two things together. There is a word for those of us who maybe have not relied on the Spirit enough that we need to rely on the Spirit of God. And there's a word for those maybe who have overemphasized that internal to come back to the objectivity of God's Word. Let God's Spirit teach you. Point number three. Let God's appearing motivate you. And this is a short point. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Have you ever found yourself in an unpresentable state in the presence of an unexpected guest? <laughs> that ever happened to you? It's Friday night, you got your PJs on already, you got the Costco street corn dip and a big bag of Tostitos. Not that I speak from experience, right? Knock on the door. Pastor Lauren, what is he doing here? Ah, what's the result of that? Shame, hiding. Turn off the lights, quick. They'll they'll think we're not home. Conversely, have you ever been caught doing something good? Unexpectedly caught doing something good? You're trying to leave the basket of goodies on somebody's front step and just sneak away, ring the doorbell and leave it, and they'll be like, oh, wow. And then they open the door because they saw you on the ring cam and they didn't know who you were. Yeah. Oh, really? It's full of groceries. Yeah. What's the result? Confidence. That's what he's talking about right here. As I allow God's word to abide in my heart and I abide in the things I've heard and I anchor into that thing, And as I let the Spirit of God work in me and teach me, as I'm not drifting away to every new fad and new doctrine and new ideology that sounds like it's the next great thing, as I just keep doing that, and I realize that God's going to show up or else I'm going to go see Him, right? God the Son is going to show up. That motivates me. And that means that I can live with confidence as opposed to shrinking back in shame. And I'm afraid that there are pastors. I'm afraid that there are Christians. And there are people who are claiming the name of Jesus. They're going to shrink back in shame in his coming because some of the garbage that has been proclaimed in the name of Jesus. And I don't want that to happen here. And I don't want that, that to happen in our own personal lives. I prayed at the end of the first service. And I'm going to pray at the end of this one right now. That God would continue to help us all to have the humility to know when we get it wrong. I will get it wrong. Okay? You guys got me on that? I will get it wrong. I will work and I will study and I will try and I will do everything that I can and I'll miss it on something. And that's when you have every permission in the world to come and say, hey, what about this? And we work on those things together and we try to understand those things together. But I promise you that the thing that I will do is try to stick as closely as I can to God's word and to lead us and guide us in that direction. And I would just want that from all of us who... who Proclaim the name of Jesus. As we close, verse 25 says, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to teach us about eternal life. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's what this book is about. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this book points us to Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He gave us his word so that you can have eternal life. If you're not a Christian, man, you can accept Christ today. Admit that you're a sinner. Accept Christ as your Savior. Get into his word. Get into church. Start following the Lord. It's a great place to be. 
let's escape the subtle spiritual sellout by continuing to remain grounded. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. And as I said earlier, I want to continue to remind you one of the ways really that you guys can, can continue to respond and, and maybe act out this sermon a little bit. We have a connect card. I'd love to have you fill that out. If you've got questions, you've got like a major disagreement with something that I said, I'd love to at least have the conversation with you, right? We'll do it in public so that there's not any fist fights or anything. But I'd love to have a conversation with you. Fill out a connect card. There's one on the back table. You can get it uh, through the QR codes are right in front of you. And then the sermon supplement is a way for you to continue to dig deeper into the sermon. So hopefully those are of some help. I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we are thankful as we are every week that we have your word that we can lean on, that we can rely on, that I can open and preach and teach through, that your spirit can illuminate and help us to understand. And Father, I do want to pray, as I've said, that you would give wisdom and discernment. And in those moments when I get it wrong or when we get it wrong, that you would help us to see that. Father, we admit right now, I admit that, that we've done that often with the Holy Spirit that in this tradition we've not given the Spirit of God the credit that He deserves for the things that He does. And so I pray that we would have a stronger reliance on the Holy Spirit. And Spirit of God, I pray that we would rely on You and, and that we would allow You to teach us and help us to understand Your Word and help us to have discernment in the things in our lives and the way that we should live. That You would convict us in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment and that we would respond to that conviction. And God, I just pray this morning that as we're doing what we're doing and thinking that we're getting it right, that you would keep us humble as we're trying to escape the sellout, that we would see those places where individually or collectively that, that, that is creeping in. We give you permission to challenge us. We give you permission to confront us with the things that we need. Not that you need our permission, but God, we want to be open to that. So I ask that you would do that this week for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.